This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. The Roman Empire. 79 CE. The early morning sun spread its fingers through the lush landscape of southern Italy's Campania region. It glinted off the beautiful villas in Herculaneum, a wealthy resort town overlooking the Bay of Naples, and continued south along the coast to Pompeii, a bustling port city known for its hospitality. As the residents of Herculaneum and Pompeii awakened, Farm workers were already humming in the fields outside the city walls. The verdant pastures had been blessed by Venus, goddess of fertility, providing the inhabitants of southern Italy with an abundance of fruits, vegetables, grains, and olives. But Venus wasn't the only deity working in the region. A massive volcano named Mount Vesuvius loomed above Pompeii, Herculaneum, and the other cities in southwest Campania. And the god who lived inside was very angry. Vulcan was the Roman god of fire. For years, he had lain dormant inside Mount Vesuvius. But now he had woken up. His wife, Venus, had been unfaithful to him. He was going to make her pay. Destroying her beloved crops should do the trick. And if thousands of mortals died in the process, so be it. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Monday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. 
This is our first of two episodes on Mount Vesuvius, a volcano that erupted in 79 CE, killing thousands of ancient Romans and wiping out the now infamous cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum. Not only did it destroy everything in its path, but Mount Vesuvius buried its victims so thoroughly that some would not be discovered for over a thousand years. This week, we'll discover the volcano's origins, learning why it picked a sunny day in the latter half of 79 CE to wield its destruction. We'll also walk the streets of Pompeii and Herculaneum and meet one eyewitness who watched the hours of horror unfold. Next week, we'll trace the minutes following Mount Vesuvius's eruption and the deadly surges that destroyed two vibrant Roman cities. We'll also follow a daring but fatal rescue mission and learn about the ongoing investigations into one of the most legendary explosions in history. Rome, 79 CE. The young Titus Flavius Vespasianus was the new ruler of the empire, his father, the emperor Vespasian, having died that same year. He was handsome, well-educated, peaceful, and just, qualities his subjects admired after the tumultuous succession of emperors before him. Although his reign would last barely two years, Titus was later described by the Roman historian Suetonius as the darling of the human race. Much of this favor was earned by his public generosity. During his brief rule, Titus oversaw the completion of the Colosseum and worked to rebuild Rome following a massive fire. But no challenge would compare to the destruction he faced in his first six months as emperor the eruption of Italy's most famous natural disaster, Mount Vesuvius. The massive volcano devoured the flourishing seaside towns of Pompeii and Herculaneum, annihilating entire populations in mere minutes. It was a sudden blow that only a god could have dealt. Just as there had been no escape from Vesuvius, there could be no recovery. Pompeii and Herculaneum had been lost forever. Even the mighty Roman Empire could not have saved them. Volcano comes from the Latin word volcanos, which literally means burning mountain. Named after Vulcan, the Roman god of fire, the venom spewed from a volcano seems otherworldly. Boiling lava, scorching steam, hurtling rocks, and lethal gases are just a few of the terrors they are capable of unleashing. Arguably, no volcano is more infamous than Mount Vesuvius. Its eruption in 79 CE has lived on as one of the most intriguing and horrifying events in human history. The mountain was thought to be an extinct volcano until it suddenly exploded. Thousands of Roman citizens across southern Italy's Campania region were given no notice to flee. Thousands of them didn't make it far enough. They were paralyzed in time by a sudden and hellish death. For many, their tissue vaporized from their skeletons. Brains boiled, teeth and bones disintegrated. Other victims suffocated from carbon dioxide poisoning or by breathing in ash, which turned to thick cement in their lungs. 
and some bodies were instantly turned into charcoal. The plaster casts of victims from Pompeii are among the most visceral sights on Earth. Nearly 2,000 years later, their mouths still gape in horror, their toes remain curled in pain, and their twisted posture speaks of a nightmare beyond our wildest imagination. In Herculaneum, hundreds of victims had huddled together, hoping the volcano's deadly flow would pass over them. They could not comprehend the horror that would instantly evaporate their flesh, leaving nothing but bones. The exact date of the Mount Vesuvius 79 CE explosion is still up for debate. The only surviving eyewitness account is that of a 17-year-old scholar named Pliny the Younger. He seems to place the eruption on August 24th, coincidentally the day after Vulcanalia, a feast worshiping the Roman god of fire. If this timing is accurate, it would have held a cruel significance for the Romans. Vulcan had chosen the day after his own festival to kill thousands of his worshipers. However, Pliny the Younger's original manuscripts didn't survive the nearly 2,000 years between then and now. Instead, his work was reprinted by later writers. These transcriptions may have gotten the date wrong, or perhaps changed it for dramatic embellishment. In 2018, archaeologists uncovered another piece of the mystery. They had stumbled upon a date written on a wall in charcoal inside a Pompeii home. When translated to our modern calendar, it reads October 17th, 79 CE. This was likely a note scrawled by a decorator, or perhaps the anxious scribble of a victim in Pompeii's last hours. Some archaeologists believe it indicates the date of Vesuvius's explosion. Among other evidence, this theory is supported by the discovery of pomegranates among Pompeii's ruins, a fruit which would not have been ripe in August, as well as a Roman coin believed to have not been distributed until September. Regardless of the month, it would have been business as usual for the Roman citizens of Pompeii that morning in 79 CE. They had no idea that their daily activities would soon be so futile. Pompeii was located against the Bay of Naples, just five miles southwest from Vesuvius. Raised on a plateau of volcanic residue overlooking the Sarno River, an estimated 12,000 citizens populated the burgeoning seaside town with estimates ranging from 6,000 to 18,000 people living in the countryside. It was a bustling city of trade and tourism. And as the sun was rising on this particular morning, shops were flinging open their doors, workers in Pompeii's many bakeries were pulling fresh loaves out of the ovens, and slaves were stepping into vats of grapes ready to be made into wine. Meanwhile, at the public laundry houses, baskets of clothes were dumped into large baths filled with urine, a taxable commodity in ancient Rome for its ability to remove grease stains. Outside, the streets were bustling with shoppers, businessmen, and slaves going about their work. Wagons followed intentional grooves in the road, while both streets and sidewalks curved in specific ways to indicate one- or two-way traffic patterns, similar to today's intersections. 
This was just one of the many ways in which Pompeii showcased Roman innovation. It also boasted an impressive 20,000-seat arena. Built from stone in 70 BCE, it is believed to have been the first of its kind in ancient Rome. It even had special canopies on pulleys, devised to protect the crowd from the heat of the sun as they watched the brutal games below. Crowds would have turned out in droves to watch the spectacle as their favorite gladiators fought to the death. They were the celebrities of their day, recognized by their unique weapons and costumes. Graffiti on the city walls depicted these beloved champions. But blood sport wasn't the only attraction in Pompeii. Its position in the fertile land surrounding Mount Vesuvius, its proximity to the beautiful Bay of Naples, and an overall mild climate made the city an epicurean destination for tourists. Regional wines, fresh olive oil, and a culture of hospitality were a few of the offerings that brought many outside patrons to Pompeii. Tourists strolled down the sidewalks lined with trinket shops and the ancient equivalent of fast food restaurants. Vendors held out jars of fish sauce, fresh from the Bay of Naples, and onions, a popular vegetable grown in Pompeii's countryside. Slaves piled steaming loaves of bread onto carts for door-to-door -door delivery. With at least 34 bakeries in Pompeii, there seemed to be one at every corner. Larger bakeries had their own grain mills, and some even had a rudimentary kneading machine consisting of wooden beams and a basin. Some of these shops had ovens that could bake up to 85 loaves at a time. Drunks stumbled out of local bars, where Pompeii's underground gambling scene was alive and well. While inside Pompeii's wineries, a new day of drinking had just begun. Wine was believed by the Romans to be a necessity of life, and slaves, women, and elites enjoyed it at all hours of the day. To be fair, it was a watered-down version of the wine we drink in 2019, meaning the Romans literally watered it down. Innkeepers swept the sidewalks in front of their doors where special house wines were available, grown and made on premises. Tourists spilled out of these inns, hotels, and brothels across the city. Husbands hurried home to their wives from the Lupanar, named after the Lupa, or she-wolf. It was Pompeii's most ornate bordello, offering a menu of erotic services painted in graphic murals on its walls. Meanwhile, a number of townspeople were making their way to Pompeii's Forum, a cement rectangle surrounded by government buildings and temples. The Forum was an important feature in any Roman city. In addition to functioning as an outdoor marketplace, a forum was a meeting ground for conducting business, political debates, or to simply meet with a friend or acquaintance. Across town, in Pompeii's temples, morning sacrifices were being offered to the gods. In the Temple of Isis, priests paid their homage to this ancient Egyptian goddess of reincarnation. As they lifted up their offerings, a small earth tremor made them pause, but it was over in a matter of seconds. They said a prayer to Isis, thanking her for her benevolence in not allowing another massive earthquake. But no one could have fathomed what events were about to take place. Mount Vesuvius was ready to 
burst. Its predecessor, Mount Soma, had exploded thousands of years before, leaving a caldera, or volcanic crater, in its wake. Unbeknownst to the inhabitants of Campania, a superheated, liquidated rock known as magma was still seeping upwards into the Earth's crust, where it collected beneath Mount Soma's remains. Inside the jagged edges of Mount Soma's crater, Mount Vesuvius began to grow until it had become its own formidable summit. Then, in roughly 1700 BCE, it exploded, inflicting its wrath on the people dwelling in Campania during Italy's Bronze Age. Nearly 2,000 years would pass between that eruption and the more famous events of 79 CE. During that lengthy time span, the Romans dwelling at the base of Mount Vesuvius mistakenly believed the volcano had lost its power. But in reality, it was gaining momentum. Beneath this mighty mountain, the chamber of magma was full once more. Pressure was building against the layer of rock that blocked its vent. It was only a matter of time before the fiery fury ripped to the surface, wreaking havoc on the unsuspecting towns below. When we return, Vesuvius delivers its final warning. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. It was a peaceful morning in late 79 CE for the Roman cities surrounding Vesuvius. No one had any idea that the giant mountain looming on the horizon concealed a boiling magma chamber below the Earth's surface. But the pressure beneath Vesuvius was mounting. In just a few hours, it would erupt. As Pompeii was waking up, another town lying in the mountain's ominous shadow was also stirring. This quiet city was known as Herculaneum. In 79 CE, Herculaneum lay 15 miles north of Pompeii along the Bay of Naples coast, just five miles from Mount Vesuvius, which was situated between the two cities but farther inland. While Pompeii's ruins have become synonymous with Mount Vesuvius, the smaller town of Herculaneum was equally devastated by the mountain's deadly blow. In fact, the buildings of Herculaneum are even better preserved, giving us a rare insight into the ancient Romans that lived there nearly 2,000 years ago. Both Herculaneum and Mount Vesuvius were named after the same Roman god, Hercules. Vesuvius means son of Ves, with Ves being another name for the Greek god Zeus, Jupiter in the Roman tradition, and Hercules being Jupiter's son. According to legend, the monster Cacus stole Hercules' cattle and hid them in a cave near Vesuvius. Hercules found his missing animals and killed Cacus as punishment. He then founded the city of Herculaneum in his own honor. But it was Cacus's father, Vulcan, who got the last laugh. 
He was also one of Zeus's sons, and as the god of fire, he would have revenge on his brother Hercules. It was only a matter of time before Vulcan would blow up Vesuvius and bury the city of Herculaneum. Sitting on a picturesque slope above the sea, Herculaneum was a city as beautifully sculpted as the god it represented. Many of its middle-class and affluent homes were situated on the city's crest, which jutted out over the Bay of Naples. Less than half the size of Pompeii, Herculaneum boasted four to 5,000 permanent inhabitants. It was something of a genteel resort town, where elites and intellectuals could congregate to enjoy the lovely sea breeze and upscale culture. On the day Vesuvius erupted, the wealthy inhabitants of these villas were just beginning their leisurely morning activities. Many of them were staying in Herculaneum temporarily, simply paying a visit to their holiday home before returning to their lives in Rome or Naples. As the morning sun cascaded over the beautiful hillside city, customers began trickling into the main streets where only foot traffic was allowed. They meandered down the sidewalks, shaded by awnings as they purchased trinkets and food. A luxury metal worker enticed the carefree shoppers with his baubles, while his neighbors held out spools of luxurious cloth, juicy produce, and fresh fish from the Bay of Naples. Meanwhile, intellectuals and politicians were making their way to Herculaneum's public forum, which was decorated with marble plates bearing the names of each surviving male who lived in the town. Each time one of these men died, their names were scratched out, providing archaeologists with a count of about 2,000 males who were living in the town when Vesuvius struck. Throughout the city, running water was being used for morning washing, thanks to Herculaneum's vast plumbing system. Aqueducts channeled into the city's water tower, and lead pipes brought running water into Herculaneum's homes, businesses, fountains, and bathhouses. Like most Roman cities, the public bathhouses in Herculaneum were funded by the municipality. Those unearthed in the city are among the most elaborate in ancient Rome, showcasing the city's love of decadence and wealthy patronage. As bathers trickled in that morning, they were greeted by beautiful mosaics, frescoes, spouting fountains, and marble sinks. Men and women separated into their respective quarters, eager to exchange gossip, talk politics, and make new acquaintances. While they sat naked and conversing, a small earth tremor vibrated the waters around them. The bathers probably shrugged it off. These quakes had been happening for days, and no one knew what to make of them. Meanwhile, the most aristocratic people of Herculaneum made their way to the suburban baths in the southwest part of town. These exclusive baths had been donated by the politician Marcus Nonius Balbus, a chief benefactor of Herculaneum, who had at least 10 statues erected in his honor across the city. Inside Balbus's elite baths, Roman nobles were enjoying a heated swimming pool, marble flooring, and other extravagant features. This facility did not have separate quarters for the sexes, suggesting that men and women probably planned their visits at different times of the day. In the fields outside Herculaneum, farm slaves had been out since the crack of dawn, toiling at their crops. 
Like Pompeii, Herculaneum had thriving wineries and boasted a variety of local vineyards which flourished in the rich volcanic soil. Mount Vesuvius itself was covered in lush greenery and vineyards, providing a scenic backdrop to the already charming city. But underneath its picturesque beauty lay an incomprehensible danger. For several days, a series of earth tremors had jostled the Campania region along the central coast of the Bay of Naples. Unbeknownst to the people living there, these were disaster signals for the cities lying in the shadow of Mount Vesuvius. While most seismic activity is caused by the movement of tectonic plates, earthquakes can also be related to volcanic activity underground. In the case of Vesuvius, superheated rock known as magma had completely filled the chamber beneath the volcano. As it fought for more room, the magma pressed against the rocks above, causing cracks, which were quickly filled with more magma. As the magma continued to leak upwards, it caused more and more cracks. Each of these phases would have resulted in a tiny earthquake felt by the people above ground. Despite these alerts, the citizens surrounding Mount Vesuvius paid little attention to the frequent tremors. They didn't know that earthquakes can foreshadow volcanic activity. The warnings, though virtually pointless, had been a long time coming. In fact, the region surrounding Vesuvius had sustained a massive earthquake just 17 years before. This quake caused tremendous damage to Pompeii and Herculaneum. Estimated at a 7.5 magnitude, it would have been similar to the San Francisco quake of 1906, which caused 3,000 fatalities and extensive infrastructural damage. According to the Roman philosopher and dramatist Seneca the Younger, the earthquake hit on February 5th, 62 CE. He reported that it inflicted great devastation on Campania. Sheep died and statues split. Seneca deduced that the 600 sheep had died from a disease caused by poisonous gases, which escaped from the earth following the quake. And he was not too far off. Experts now believe it was carbon dioxide that killed the sheep. This curious disaster caused destruction to even the wealthiest of homes and flattened the poorer houses of the region. Public buildings were torn apart and water piping was damaged. The earthquake in 62 is believed to have been the precursor to Mount Vesuvius's wrath. It was a massive indicator of the terrors to come. But the citizens of Pompeii and Herculaneum didn't understand these omens. They immediately began to repair the damage caused by the earthquake without making any preparations in case another one hit. Two years later, in 64 CE, another earthquake rocked the region. This time it was mid-sized, not causing significant damage. Legend has it that the Emperor Nero had been visiting Naples just several miles north of Herculaneum. He was starring in his own concert when the earthquake hit. Not wanting to have his performance interrupted, Nero continued to sing and play his instrument as the walls around him shuddered and his audience gritted their teeth. Though whether it was from the earthquake or from Nero's notoriously poor singing, we'll never know. 
With no scientific understanding of these earthquakes, the ancient Romans believed they were the rumblings of the gods. And when the earth tremors began in the days leading up to Vesuvius's explosion, they may have stepped up their sacrifices, thanking the gods for not being more severe. They were oblivious to the massive danger brewing underground. In the chamber below Vesuvius, hot lava had turned into foam. It forced against the final plug of rock that blocked its exit. Mount Vesuvius was about to erupt. Up next, Vesuvius releases its fury. Now back to the story. In 79 CE, the Roman cities of Herculaneum and Pompeii were still recovering from a massive earthquake in Campania just 17 years before. Pompeii's forum and other public buildings were still undergoing repair. Several of the grand homes in the city were rebuilt as businesses, making one wonder if their former owner wasn't willing to risk another shock. But despite the disaster, both cities continued to flourish. And as the sun rose higher on this particular morning in the year 79, no one seemed to mind that a series of earth tremors had been nudging the region for the past few days. They had no idea that these quakes were warnings from Mount Vesuvius. The green and tranquil mountain was not the benevolent neighbor they had come to know it as. Below ground, Vesuvius's volcanic chamber had reached its breaking point. Nearly 2,000 years of magma buildup exerted explosive pressure against the rocks blocking the volcano's vent. There was no more room in its underground cavity to contain the foaming mass of molten rock and poisonous gas. At mid-morning, an earthquake would have shook the ground as Mount Vesuvius released the first of several small gas emissions. The people of Pompeii and Herculaneum watched in bewilderment as these emissions continued for hours. They looked like vaporous clouds spouting directly from the peak of Vesuvius. Perhaps some people began to prepare to leave, unsure of what other surprises the mountain might have in store. But these clouds were nothing compared to what Vesuvius would unleash in a few hours. Shortly after noon, the mountain exploded. A churning column of ash, poisonous fumes, and volcanic rock shot into the sky at supersonic speed. The earth seemed to ripple beneath Pompeii. The citizens gaped in horror at the inferno rising from the mountain. The column climbed 20 miles into the air before it lost its thrust. Then it began to spread like an umbrella. Our only eyewitness account of Mount Vesuvius's eruption is that of Gaius Plinius Caecilius Secundus, better known as Pliny the Younger. In his time, Pliny the Younger was a lawyer and author. But today, we remember him primarily as a historian for providing us valuable insight into the timeline of Vesuvius's eruption. His letters, which have only been passed down to us through transcriptions, were penned some 25 years after the disaster at the request of his friend and colleague, the historian Tacitus. 
They're conversational, drawing on memory from an event that happened when he was 17 years old. The main character in these letters is Pliny's uncle and namesake, Caius Plinius Secundus, better known as Pliny the Elder. A descendant of aristocracy, Pliny the Elder was a Roman politician. He had been the governor of Roman territories in eastern Spain, and he sat in council for Rome's current emperor Titus, as he had also done for Titus's father, Vespasian. Aside from his political career, Pliny the Elder had a passion that occupied every spare minute of his personal time. He loved to research and write, specifically about history and nature. Unlike other writers of his era, Pliny the Elder did not waste time philosophizing. He preferred cold, hard facts over discussions of meaning, and his books included various topics such as the Roman Wars, spear-throwing, and oratory tactics. His most famous works are his 37 volumes of Naturalis Historia, or Natural History. Based on research from 2,000 other sources, Pliny the Elder worked tirelessly to compound a modern understanding of the natural world. These volumes were his opus, an expression of his undying fascination with nature, and he could not stand to waste any time that could otherwise be spent studying his favorite subject. Pliny the Elder famously surrounded himself with men whose job was to read to him whenever he wasn't reading or writing with his own eyes. No matter what he was doing, he was always gathering research. At the time of Vesuvius's eruption, he had been given the position of commander over a fleet of Roman ships. He was stationed in Misenum, just 20 miles away from the volcano. His widowed sister and her son, Pliny the Younger, were living with him at the time. All three of them were at home on the morning Vesuvius erupted, though it seems that none of them heard or felt the explosion. According to Pliny the Younger's letters, his uncle had been sunbathing that morning before enjoying a cold bath and a light lunch. No doubt he had someone reading to him as he went about these leisurely activities. He had just sat down to resume his research when Pliny the Younger's mother cried out. Both uncle and nephew rushed to the doorway where she stood. Across the Bay of Naples, a dark column was rising above Mount Vesuvius. In his letters, Pliny the Younger described its shape as an umbrella pine, a type of Mediterranean tree with a thin trunk that rises high before branching out into a flat canopy. Today, volcanologists describe this as a Plinian eruption in honor of Pliny the Younger's accurate description. Fascinated by this phenomenon, Pliny the Elder ordered a slave to bring him his sandals. He quickly slipped them on and rushed outside to get a better view of the disaster. As the column crept across the sky over Mount Vesuvius, Pliny the Elder was consumed with curiosity. He had waited his whole life to witness such a monumental natural phenomenon. For the sake of his research, he had to get a closer look. He stormed back into the house, demanding that a fast ship be prepared immediately for departure. Then he turned to his nephew and invited Pliny the Younger to accompany him. Pliny the Younger would later say that he chose to stay behind because he didn't want to leave his studies. But perhaps he was hesitant at the sight of Mount Vesuvius's wrath. Either way, 
he declined. As his uncle left the house, a messenger ran up to him. He was sweating profusely, a note clutched in his hand. It had been written by Rectina, the wife of Pliny the Elder's good friend, Tascius. She was begging for help. She was stranded at her villa near the volcano with no boat to escape. She pleaded with Pliny the Elder to come and rescue her. In a split second, his scientific expedition became a rescue mission. He would set course for the small town of Stebi on the opposite coast and attempt to travel inland to rescue Rectina. Pliny the Younger watched as his uncle disappeared down to the docks of Misenum. It was the last time he would ever see him alive. Meanwhile, the sky overhead was growing darker as the mushroom cloud began to inch south over the city of Pompeii. Vesuvius's wrath had only just begun. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. Next week, we'll follow the deadly eruption as it strikes Herculaneum and Pompeii and the dangerous rescue mission to the shores of Vesuvius. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Natural Disasters for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Allie Wicker, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard. 